get started hello (laughs) we're back (laughs) oh my god we are back hello everyone girls and gays girls gays and theys welcome to rate debate recreate i'm sammy purcell and i am logan color and season three is here (laughs) it is here and i am so happy to be back so excited I feel like we um we like learned a lot in season one I feel like we (laughs) kind of hit our stride a bit more in season two um and I'm excited I feel like now that we have more shit together and we also took some time to like rest which I don't think we did well enough in seasons Mm -hmm. one and two no debatable (laughs) I'm excited to see what we can do yeah rate debate debatable (laughs) debatable rate debatable recreatable um yeah I I wonder if it'll take us some time to shake the rust off like I've been playing intramural Mm. softball and and between (laughs) seasons I come back and I'm like oh I don't know am I gonna be good at this but you know what I still am so yeah you are and we're still competent at this at least (laughs) this is a very competent podcast yeah the very the most um Logan I have a question for you I might have an answer for you Sammy how do you feel about Disney slash Pixar slash that whole shebang honestly I think that my feelings are really complicated Mm. because I think that you have to be able to live in a world of nuance with these things. (laughs) And so I have to hold both truths that like, on one hand, let's go ahead and say and acknowledge that Disney is like kind of the epitome of a capitalist company operates under those things. And I'm not like fully supportive of all of the things (laughs) Disney has done as a company. the donations they've made to certain politicians, Mm -hmm. the ideals they have literally created in some cases through their movies. And at the same time, I grew up watching Disney. I, many of my favorite movies are Disney. Probably all my favorite animated movies for the most part, (laughs) like come from Disney or Pixar. And I do think that like with their flaws and their like limited ability to make certain commentaries due to their status. I also think they make some really impeccable art. And mm-hmm. I think that we're going to talk about some of that today. So we are definitely going to talk some about some of my thoughts. <laughs> we are definitely going to talk about the best of the best, I will say. I agree with you. Like Disney, I think that a lot of the stuff that's happened over the past, like I guess especially two decades, two decades is like probably not good for art in general, like the commercialization of all that. But you uh-huh. know what? I also fucking love the two things we're about to talk about. And yeah. one of them did come out in the last like 20 years. So yeah. <laughs> <No>. less. <laughs> less than that, way less than that. And we could talk about, I'm sure you're going to get into it, but there's some complicated stuff there too. So yeah. anyway, enough <laughs> of that. So if you've, I don't know, been living under a rock or you're new to- Yeah, if you're not one of our 300 <laughs> listeners- <laughs> what have you been doing with your life like for real um but if you are new to rate debate recreate please disregard what we just said we welcome you um and just explain a little bit explain a little bit about what this show is about so each week uh logan and i pick two shows based on a category 
Uh, we rate that show on a scale of one to 10. We debate which one is better. And then we think of one aspect you might change or recreate the show, like something we would use to like make it a little different, make it a little better, maybe make it a little worse. You know, who knows? <laughs> Who's to say? <laughs> Um, and each week, again, like I said, we have a category. And if you haven't been able to figure that out yet, this week, the category is Disney. Woo! <laughs> my show is Beauty and the Beast. And my show is Coco. And oh. let me just say, we both know Coco is Pixar, but Pixar is under Disney. Yes. And yeah. <laughs> they are one. Also, you watch Coco on Disney Plus, like get with it. Logan is a lot more worried about this than I am. <laughs> he texted me like two hours ago and was like, Sammy, we fucked up. Coco is Pixar. And I was like, I think they're kind of like interchangeable at this point. Yeah, um, maybe not are. like the creators and stuff, but at least like we all view them on the same platform. We can call it the big umbrella of Disney. This category is Disney Plus. How about that? Okay. <laughs> In real time, we're changing. It's Disney Plus. Okay. So that means we can also talk about a lot of stuff. But anyway, um, I love both of these shows. I'm really excited. To... I do too. I think this is like a great comeback episode for season three to start. I do too. I think people will enjoy it. Um, should we get started with the little summary? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. So I guess if you don't know, I because I feel like Beauty and the Beast, like sorry, tangent for a moment, is like you know, it's like the Disney Renaissance is the time when they were taking old fairy tales and like, you know, judging them up and stuff with um, music, which we'll talk about a little bit. Um, but if you, I guess, didn't grow up in a place where some version of Beauty and the Beast existed, here's a summary of that story. So we basically start off with this prince who is of indeterminate age. He might be 11. I don't know, which kind of changes this whole thing into something that's a bit weird. Anyway, we start off with this prince, um, a beggar woman shows up at his castle and she's like, please, like, let me inside. There's a storm. Like, please, you know, kind of begging for mercy. And he's like, no, get out. Which again, he's 11, apparently living by himself, like, when answering the door. But anyway, yeah, whatever. He refuses, and it turns out that that woman is actually a beautiful enchantress, and he's like, oh my god, no, and because of his selfishness and his cruelty, she casts a spell on him and turns him into a huge beast, for some reason also casts a spell on everyone living at the castle, so they turn him <laughs> to household objects. And he Pretty has severe punishment <laughs> for severe. an 11-year-old. Honestly, I don't know. Is he 11? We can get into that later. I'm really unsure how old he's supposed to be. But basically, the spell is she gives him an enchanted rose, and he has to learn to love another and be loved in return before the last petal falls, which will occur at the beginning of his 21st year. So he's at least like a teenager. Yeah. Because we don't, I don't know how long the time jump is supposed to be, but several years later, we meet Belle who, you know, she's beautiful, but she reads, so people are confused. <laughs> <laughs> and she, you know, she has her father, Maurice, who's kind of like ditzy inventor type, you know, lovable, lovable smart guy, but like a little bit, you know, scatterbrained. And she has Gaston, who is just like trying to marry her, trying to marry her all the time. And he sucks. He's like narcissistic. He's a hunter, which is a, you know, I guess like in the, I guess in France in the time we're supposed to be living in that's like a very profitable profession and you would kind of want to be around the hunter because he gets the food but anyway 
there's all this stuff going on and her dad is going to this like invention convention and he gets lost on the way and he gets trapped at the beast house and the beast is like very stingy about people coming to visit and I guess that makes sense like he's pretty scary people probably don't react well to him and Belle goes out to find her father she ends up taking his place yada yada you know the story she's imprisoned by the beast but he's kind of like a low-key jailer like he lets her run around the castle and do stuff um they eventually fall in love he lets her go because she wants to see her father and he loves her so much but then she accidentally ends up revealing that there's actually a beast in a castle that these people apparently can't see i don't know why but they can't and they don't know that it exists (laughs) um there's like a whole side plot where this crazy insane asylum guy is trying to like institutionalize her father that's not very good And basically what ends up happening is the mob of the crowd of the people who live in the town storm the castle, castle fights them off, Gaston tries to kill the beast, it doesn't work, he falls to his death, Belle ends up falling in love with the beast, and she turns him back into a human, which, here, here's another question, do you think human beast is hot? Um, yeah. Okay, so for the longest time, it was like a very, I don't know if this was just among (laughs) my friends or like the internet at large, it was like a common thing to be like, maybe Beast was hotter as a piece. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) I didn't say he wasn't. (laughs) Because he kind of just looks like, and I remember thinking this like, oh, he looks just like a generic man with long hair. Like he doesn't look, you know, like Prince Eric is like very dreamy. Like the other Disney princes are like much better looking. I kind of thought Human Beast was hot this time around. So that's my hot take for yeah. this whole thing is that that's that's growing human up. beast is hot that's <laughs> growing up that's on maturing <laughs> but yeah that's what happens in meeting the beast um there's also a broadway musical which we'll touch on a little bit but i did watch the cartoon for this podcast which came out in 1991 um i'm gonna rate uh beating the beast nine out of ten eggs wow yeah did you watch the definitive version of beauty and the beast do you what do you mean the 1991 one no the definitive version of beauty and the beast is the production they put on in high school musical the musical the series season (laughs) two for their main stage production where they add a song called the rose from the roses perspective that olivia rodrigo sings that is the definitive version i would love to hear that though (laughs) i i do have some thoughts about um making up your own songs years after the fact um 2017 emma watson true and they in in the the tv show for what it's worth that's like a whole plot point they're like oh our like secret weapon to win the award is going to be that we're going to create a new song from the roses perspective and then like they're immediately like you can't do that like (laughs) so you just get the song but it's not actually they don't actually do it okay whatever there are songs right there anyway we'll talk about all that (laughs) all right give Um, me a coco awesome or i'll go ahead and rate beauty and the beast i'm also going to give it a nine out of ten eggs um i love beauty and the beast i think it is um I think it's kind of like how similar to how I feel about Oklahoma, where it is like a classic that I think still lives up and um, may not be perfect, but like for the most part stands the test of time and is is really well done. Yes, I agree. Um, okay, let's talk about Coco. Let me just give a little preface here. 
Coco is my favorite Pixar movie. It is one of my favorite movie movies. Um, I fucking love this so much. So that bias is definitely going to seep into this. Um, Mm -hmm. But I hope that I can back it up with some thoughts and personal experience. Um, Anyway, if you haven't seen Coco, change that right away. Um, (laughs) And I'll tell you what it's about. So Coco follows 12-year-old Miguel, who wants to be a musician, but music is forbidden in the family and has been for generations because of this like multi-generational family drama, basically. Um, (laughs) His family seemingly happily uh, runs this like shoemaking business. And for the most part, things are pretty good. But the expectation is that no family member that is uh, Rivera will be anywhere near music, Mm -hmm. which um, contrasts with Miguel, who that's like his whole purpose and his whole being, basically. Uh, Eventually, Miguel runs away from home to pursue music, um, coincidentally on Dia de los Muertos, which is like Day of the Dead, we'll talk about that more, and somehow is accidentally transported to the underworld, the afterlife, realm of the dead, whatever you want to call it. And here, he meets like all the ancestors that he has learned about, including the matriarch and his great-great-grandmother, who started this whole beef um, that the Rivera family <laughs> has with music. Um, so throughout this like journey, he is kind of like seeking to meet his deceased idol as well, Ernesto de la Cruz, um, and ends up finding his great-great-grandfather along the way, um, discovering some pretty disturbing truths about why he really left the family. Spoiler alert, he didn't actually leave the family. He was murdered by Miguel's idol, Ernesto. Um, so yeah, that's that's kind of the basic plot um, of, of Coco, but definitely deals with like family, death, and like purpose, I would say, are kind of the main themes. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to go ahead right off the bat. I'm going to give this 10 out of 10 Pocos Locos. First of all, let me just say, I know that I can be a little generous on this podcast (laughs) and musicals. Um, I've said it before, I'll say it again. I think there's a lot of really amazing musicals out there. And while some might say that the amount of tens I give, which isn't that crazy, I haven't given that many, but I talk about my favorite shows on here. So of course I'm gonna give some tens. Some might say that diminishes the value of a 10. I just think that there are lots of tens created out there (laughs) and that we, sometimes don't always fully allow ourselves to believe that they're tens whatever that's a whole separate conversation um but i'm gonna give it a 10 i love this movie it means so much to me i've probably seen it no not kidding 30 plus times it was like a huge comfort movie for me and somehow among all of those times i still don't think i've gotten through it a single time without sobbing my eyes out I respect that. I don't think it diminishes the 10. You know, you're generous. You're generous. (laughs) Um, I'm going to be close to as generous. I do think that as like a musical, I would put Beauty and the Beast ahead, which like I'll Mm. talk about the music stuff. So I'm going to go ahead and give Coco an 8 out of 10 just because of that reason. But I think as like a story and the story beats that Coco hits and like like you said, just like the themes of family. And like, I remember watching it for the first time and just being like, kind of surprised at how things unfolded because I think you can watch it and like, you know, Gael Garcia Bernal shows up, his name is Hector. He Mm -hmm. shows up and you're kind of like, oh, this guy's probably important 
and you kind of guess I think that he's actually the great grandfather and not Ernesto de la Cruz but the actual like the way you get there yes and they'll look yeah. into the past and stuff was yeah, awesome and then the end with Mama Coco is just yeah iconic sad I cried <laughs> yeah I'll, I'll I'll agree with you actually I I will say my rating is based on this as a piece of work in general mm-hmm. I do agree it it does kind of feel like frozen to me a little bit where it's mm-hmm. like a movie with songs that that help the plot mm-hmm. less than it is a musical and I also think that much like frozen it with some like padding of extra songs could easily make the transition to a stage and be like a more traditional musical mm. um than it is like right to now see that. that'd be interesting Me too. i would love that okay so let's get started into some let's discussion go. stuff speaking of musicals i do want to talk about like the alan mankin and howard ashman of it all because they are the reason that we like have that musicals are such a big part of disney Mm-hmm. Um, kind of before the Disney Renaissance, I'm going to start that with like Little Mermaid, I think is appropriate. 1989, Disney, I feel like didn't do like musicals, you know, they did movies for kids with songs. So like you've got, I mean, like Snow White has songs. That's a really old example, but Snow White has songs, but like someday my friends will come. Like they're not like the most, mm-hmm. I would argue, memorable songs and they're not given the like pizzazz and finesse that the Disney Renaissance songs are given if that makes sense yeah I agree so I want to talk a little bit about because Disney like brought Howard Ashman and Alan Menken on after they heard Little Shop of Horrors or saw Little Shop of Horrors so 1986 that's when you get Little Shop of Horrors which was I think off Broadway at the time it might have been the movie I'm not really sure of that timeline but they were hired by Disney off of the strength of the songs in that musical Um, because Disney wanted to like kind of transition more into the musical route. So I'm going to start, I'm going to do this like based on the Alan Menken run of things because Howard Ashman unfortunately passed away much before his time. But I just want to like do this run really quick because it's amazing. So we'll start with 1986. He does Little Shop of Horrors with Howard Ashman on lyrics and Alan Menken is, Alan Menken is the composer. So everyone else I mentioned is lyrics. 1989, The Little Mermaid with Howard Ashman. 1991, Beating the Beast with Howard Ashman. And Ashman passed away in 1991, so that's the last one that he was fully on board for. 1992, Newsies with Jack Feldman. 1992, Aladdin with half Howard Ashman, half Tim Rice. 1995, Pocahontas with Stephen Schwartz. 1996, Hunchback of Notre Dame with Stephen Schwartz. 1997, Hercules with David Zippel. Zippel, I'm not sure. 2004, Home on the Range with Glenn Slater. 2007, Enchanted with Stephen Schwartz. 2010, Tangled with Glenn Slater. We're going to end it with 2001 um, or 2011. You know the song in Captain America, stars, bangled man with a plan. Like they do that big musical number yeah, in the middle yeah, of it yeah, yeah. when he's like on the USO route. Um, Alan Menken also wrote that with David. Zippel. Wow. So it's a pretty good run, I would yeah. say, from 1986 to 2011. For like a, what, 20 year span to do all that? Yeah, pretty nuts. Um, and then I did kind of want to jump back to Howard Ashman. Um, because he did die in 1991. He told Alan Macon that he had contracted HIV AIDS after the 1990 Oscars. So Beating the Beast was the last film that he did in its entirety. And he died before it was released, but I believe he got to see an early cut. Um, and at that point had already pitched like 
half of Aladdin, I think. So his like DNA is all over that movie, but really like his DNA and like the lyrics and stuff is like all over Disney as a whole. I feel like, Mm -hmm. like it all stems particularly from like the little mermaid in this movie, I think. Um, And then I also wanted to talk a little bit about the animation before getting into like the musical adaptation of it all, just because I didn't know a lot of this. So apparently they only had two years to make it. And at the time, Disney's standard timeline was four years. So you know how the end looks kind of bad, like the final dance. (laughs) You know what I'm talking about? Like when they're just like dancing around the room and they're like, beauty and the beast. So that end dance sequence stolen from Sleeping Beauty. Um, It's the same like animation, I guess, like plan. Yeah, And they were just like, we don't have enough time. (laughs) Let's just do that. (laughs) And if you look at it, all the people look like pale imitations of themselves. It's like very (laughs) uncanny valley. Um, And then the other thing I found very interesting was they had a new system, like a new animation system at this point called CAPS, Computer Animation Production System, I think is what that stands for. And they had really only used it for Rescuers Down Under, Um, And they hadn't really done this with it yet. So basically it like made it easier to combine CGI with hand-drawn art. So they didn't really want to use that at first because they didn't think the technology was good enough, but like into making the movie, they decided that it had improved enough that they could use it for one scene. So you know how the ballroom scene looks 3D? Mm -hmm. So they like rendered a 3D thing and like had cameras like zoom around it basically is my understanding of how it works. But I thought that was cool. And that like put Disney more into the arena of like using computer generated imagery, which I think is like, you know, hot and cold because on the one hand it it can look very cool, but sometimes I miss like the hand drawn stuff. It looked very pretty and interesting. Mm -hmm. Anyway, that's so that's, cool. yeah, that's some background. Now I want to make my argument. My main argument is that I think um, this is Disney's best, like, film to screen, or, well, screen to stage mm-hmm. musical adaptation. And I don't think that's a very hot take, so I'm not going to claim that it's one. And I haven't seen all of them, but the ones I have seen, like The Little Mermaid, I'm kind of going to include Anastasia in this conversation just because it's, like, the same era. Yeah. You know? And then I've seen like bits of Aladdin. So those are the ones I've seen. I haven't seen Frozen. So I don't know how they like kind of render the animation. That's but I think cool. I've seen cool. it. Okay. Yeah. Well, you can, I, I, you can I don't give think your I would take. I put it above Beauty and the Beast though. Okay. Um, I think what Beauty and the Beast gets so right is that it like properly transpires or like transposes, probably the right word, transposes the animation from an animated sequence like to stage. So I've seen this musical mm. like, a million times like I don't think I could even count like every time it came to Atlanta I was like can you please take me because I loved this movie so much and I think it like does a good job at understanding the limitations of what they can actually do for example the little mermaid it was very fixated on everything looking like it was underwater and that can be really cool like they have like the scrim they use when she saves Eric from drowning that looks very cool like she's mm-hmm. on a wire but it does not look very cool when you ask all the actors to stand on stage and like do body rolls. So it looks like they're moving in the waves. That's yeah. just not very cool. So like Beauty and the Beast understands limitations that it has, but it also like, I think accurately recreates the magic of what seeing the animation is like. Like in Be Our Guest, 
you know in the movie version when they start they just have like that blank screen and the plates like start to like mm-hmm. move in lines across there's no real characters it's just like cutlery moving across the screen I can like see that in my head on yeah, stage on stage yeah because they just tried to recreate like the not necessarily the image of it exactly but the movement of it is kind of the same so like a long line of plates across the stage and like the colors are the same you can just see how it like transposes in your head also the beast design i mean i think that's like one of the oh my God, the reveal yeah <laughs> oh that too but like i think the oh, beast design in general is design, like yeah. one of the greatest character designs they've ever done like he's just and maybe that's why people think that like the prince is so blah because like the beast is so expressive and like can be very scary and then like very cute and like very cuddly at one point you know like he moves like yeah. between that very well and then the transformation I looked and I could not find a consensus on how they actually do it but I have this like very strong memory of someone in our high school saying that they knew someone who worked on it on Broadway and I think what this is what he said happened he could have been lying so don't sue me I don't know if this is true um but I think that what they do is like at some point they like usher the beast out really quickly and send out like the prince like I think they're two different people Mm -hmm. and they like somehow usher the prince in and the prince doesn't have all the makeup on but he has like paws and like a head and like this kind of stuff so he it's dark enough that he looks like has the shape of the beast basically and then I very vividly remember the guy saying that like once he goes up they do a bunch of like light show magic trick magic trick and he has to like get the stuff off his hands and feet and bell has to basically just like swoop them <laughs> off stage <laughs> like as quickly and like indiscriminately as she can and so i'm gonna say that's what happens i don't know but i like remember being like because i think they tried to keep it a secret for a long time because they wanted it to be like magical or whatever but i think it's cool like figuring out how it works yeah um, because the fact that it looks i eat those videos up like yeah. i'll pull that gets in this yeah like that <laughs> yeah. kind of thing the fact that it looks like amazing every time um makes me just I think that's just as magical mm-hmm. um and then before I get to like some critiques I wanted to mention something that so I listened to this podcast so this isn't my idea but it kind of made me cry um the podcast is called you are good or yeah you are good it's like a movie feelings podcast so I actually listen to it a lot and cry <laughs> um but one of the hosts, Sarah Marshall, talked about this and had this, like, she talked about the last time she watched it and how she kind of, like, had this, like, deep sadness for Howard Ashman, who was, like, most likely writing it when he, like, knew that he was dying mm-hmm. and brought up, like, the imagery of the beast and, like, the rose and how, like, you're so desperately like trying to find someone to love you, but you don't have enough time and you just know that it's like ticking and ticking away. And <laughs> sorry, I'm gonna cry. Yeah. But wow. she brought that up and I was just like, what a beautiful because I feel like, and I'll get into this, I feel like the beast gets a lot of flack for being a love interest, which like some of it is well deserved. Um, but that kind of part of it just like really touched me. Yeah. And, and even really taking that a little further too, like even it being like the, the beast, like yeah this Mm -hmm. being like marked as this other like entity that is taboo and is like not something you interact with wow I'd never Mm -hmm. 
I didn't having the mob song like I think the mob yeah the mob literally says like we don't we don't like what we don't understand in fact it scares us so no 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 so like there's definitely a lot wow I've not thought of that before yeah um but I guess we can get to um maybe one of the critiques that I don't really have much of a critique about in fact I think it's fine but I think what people mostly critique when they critique Beauty and the Beast is like the romance of it all um and there's this very like I guess the main critique is that it's like Stockholm Syndrome right Mm -hmm. which I guess it kind of is but also Stockholm Syndrome I feel like is a lot more complicated than that like it involves like thinking that like one person is going to be able to save you more than the police can so I don't want to get into all that that's like a whole nother podcast but I don't think that like bringing a necessarily like an adult brain to this particular aspect of this story is like very helpful I guess like keeping it simplistic as like be nice to people regardless of what they look like like understand that people are like going through things that you don't know about is like more the route I want to take and I don't think that it's like I don't know because I don't want to say that it's like helpful to just like dismiss it altogether but I also do think that like the sit for the situation that they've put them in like she has found a person if we're like you know and it sounds stupid to say but if we're just like ignoring like the prisoner aspect mm-hmm. of it all but for the situation she's in she's found a person who like enjoys her interests and thinks she's interesting and she thinks he's interesting and like there's this like bond that they form that's based on like reading and like respect which is like sort of the inverse of the other option she's given so I think like and even that might be putting like a little too much of an adult brain on it because I think the other like critique that this gets is like she spends the whole time being like I want adventure I want to like go out and do stuff and then she gets married (laughs) um but I do think like First of all, she mentions romance as one of the things she wants, like quite often, Mm -hmm. like she's reading the book at the end and she's like, oh, Prince Charming, like, so like, clearly that's something that interests her. Also, I think if you take this as like the end of her story, then yeah, that is a critique. But if we're like going to be really realistic about it, like, what is the other option like marrying rich like is a gateway to the adventure i feel mm-hmm. like does that make sense yeah it does i i, I totally yeah. agree with you i think that like for me it just comes down to like that's not the point you know like <laughs> it's not yeah. and it, it's i it's not that you can't like point it out or like no, acknowledge no. it but it's i think there's a difference between that just being like part of the fairy tale that they're telling versus them trying to like position that as like a truth or as like a a good thing you know and I don't think that's the point it's like it's the circumstance that you're in it's made for kids like it's it's all an allegory anyway Mm -hmm. it's not trying to say like fall in love with your damn kidnapper that's not like (laughs) a message that they're trying to send it's just like one that you could find in that story that's being told that's my take I just feel like it's one of those things where when you're like 18 or something, you're like, oh, Beauty and the Beast is bad now, actually. And then like, as I get older, I'm like, well, it still has really great songs. Like, I think at the end of the day, it does present like a pretty clear message 
as far as its villain, which we can mm-hmm. get into, which I think is like something very interesting that it's doing, especially, and they said a lot of this on You Are Good Too, but I, I had these thoughts before and then I'm kind of like bringing in stuff that they said that I thought was interesting. Um, but like, I think it's so strange that like most of the Disney villains are like, you know, Scar who and like Ursula who are queer coded and not in the like real they're just not included in like most Mm -hmm. of the story like they don't live with everyone else no one likes them everyone hates them like oh they're you know out like scars like lives under a rock by himself you know and Ursula lives in a cave but Gaston is like the most popular guy in town like he is like the hot jock he's maybe the straightest man of all time I guess he does like to sing and dance but still straightest (laughs) man of all time who like everyone loves and they just like I think it's interesting that like the guy who was so clearly positioned because I like even when you're a kid you understand that like this is the bad guy this is the guy we don't like and he's positioned as like the coolest guy in town. Like, I think that's pretty smart. And I maybe I think they so get, too. And I think like the stuff with the beast, like you can argue that like, that's like a little bit maybe like incel behavior. I don't want to go that far, but you can like argue <laughs> that maybe they like lose like the plot a little bit just because of like the circumstances of the story they're trying to tell. But the Gaston stuff is like really straightforward. Like this guy is bad. And, and sometimes the popular things. people are bad. Sometimes the people everyone likes are bad. And I think that's like a very, I wonder why they never went in that route again. Cause I think mm-hmm. he's like, I mean, not like I, I love Ursula as a villain. I love Scar as oh, a yeah. villain, but I feel like with those villains, like. It's so obvious. It's They're so. They're just like plain yeah. evil. Everyone hates them. And there's they no become, like. Yeah. And there's like a reclamation of them now. I think like, I remember when, oh, do you remember when the live action Lion King came out and people were like they made Scar the like live action lion like look very like ragged and run down and like emaciated and people were like where's my fabulous lion (laughs) like where is like this so and I think Disney was trying to like get away from that critique that they like queer code villains but I also think there's been like a reclamation of those villains like yeah well and and we'll soon have uh it's Melissa McCarthy I know yeah as Ursula so I wonder what her like design will be like if like they'll try to you know yeah going that route but no one's trying to like reclaim Gaston you know yeah. <laughs> like, like Gaston just sucks yeah. like <laughs> so I don't know I found that like super interesting but mm-hmm. that's most of what I have to say I just think like the kind of critique that Beauty and the Beast gets is like I don't know I understand where people are coming from but I also think like the music is so good like we can talk about get to my bop list which is basically the entire thing and like the lyrics (laughs) are incredible like Howard Ashman was a genius amazing and I think that like the basic message of like just because someone is popular doesn't mean they're good and that someone who like lets you sit in a library and read and is okay with that is maybe like a better partner (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) if those are the two options you're given (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> all right you ready for coco um yeah do you want to do your bop list or should we we can do that, and do that after okay cool yeah. i'll go into coco then okay okay so i split my thing into like stray thoughts a few themes that i want to talk about and then my personal experience with the show so 
I'll start off with some stray thoughts. Mentioned this. This is hands down my favorite Pixar movie. Also my favorite animated movie. I'll go ahead and say. Fun fact. Maybe not so fun fact. The first time I saw this movie, I like. I know I keep saying I sob every time I see this movie. It's true. But like, I don't know how to accurately describe that. I was like heaving. I was like violently yeah. sobbing. And after the movie ended, I like couldn't stop crying for like 30 <laughs> minutes. I guess it's important to note that I did around the time this movie came out is also when my abuela was dealing with dementia. Oh God. <laughs> so the whole like literal <laughs> memory thing yeah. with Coco like death, like Latinidad, all of that together definitely contributed. So mm-hmm. I think I just saw a lot of my family in the story. Yeah, fun fact though, it like literally kills me every time I watch it. Me too, um, I've never watched that. That scene in particular, I've never watched yeah, it without crying. Oh my God, it's yeah. impossible. Um, I, I might go on a limb and say, this is like, not not like considering the movie, but specifically the animation itself. This might be the best animated movie like the animation quality I've ever seen. It is insane. I also think that like, in addition to it just being like something that works for the story and being important to tell culturally, Dia de los Muertos is like genius to use mm-hmm. as a as a like source or whatever for, for animating potential, just because of the like intricate designs and colors that are embedded in it as a holiday. Mm-hmm. And I think it works out so well, like when you see the bridge to the dead and then you have that like panning shot of like basically New York City, but like <laughs> way like, 50 cooler. years in the future yeah. and the <laughs> land of the dead and everything is like beautifully colored. I think that's really cool. And then the last thing I learned from a TikTok, I cannot, I don't remember who account it was. I just remember seeing it and like being like, what? Um, but a cool thing I learned is that like the direction that, Miguel is running in is always like really symbolic so anytime he's going after something that's like music um, or anything like that he's running to the right side of the screen Um, so when he's going to the across the bridge to the dead he's running to the right when he's you know running away to go to the plaza he's running to the right all those things and then anytime he's going towards his family he's running to the left Um, and I think that's really smart because the whole central tug of this movie is the pool between you know music in this case maybe let's just say like identity or passion Mm -hmm. um and family and like trying to find the balance of existing as an individual um but also existing as a member of a family unit so i think that's a great transition to talk about family which i think is a is probably the biggest theme above all um of this movie but the whole crux of the movie is that family is is or should be I think the most important thing above everything else and I think there's a really great irony in Miguel's family banning like any interest even like a showing interest in music that the whole reason they're doing this that that they're anti-music or whatever is that his great-great-grandfather allegedly abandoned his family to pursue music Um, and so they're portraying music as like a distraction from what should matter family but in doing that they're literally driving Miguel away from family in the first place Mm -hmm. um and that's what he's like running away from and towards like it's it's so cyclical I also think it totally ties into the directions that he's running in so yeah I think that's really cool really interesting 
Um, and then while he's doing this, running away from his family in pursuit of music, that's when he discovers the, the true meaning and importance of both mm-hmm. and like finds this way to both hold space for music and family. And to like, when, when you think about it that way, I think that this film's like thesis statement that might be a little more, I don't know, maybe it's not hidden. It, it was <laughs> definitely a little more hidden to me is that like the family and the family's needs do not supersede those of the individual. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we see that a ton in movies where, you know, the kid's not accepted for whatever, for whatever reason, a thing they like. And so they have to figure out it themselves. So th- I don't think that's new. But I also think a message that we don't see as much, especially in like American society, is that the individual's needs also don't supersede the family. family. And I think that one can be a little harder to swallow because I think we can all relate to like wanting to do something and not being able to for whatever reason because Mm -hmm. of family. And I think it's harder to put yourself in the like, yes, and there is a greater significance, importance, something going on there with yeah. family like your family's um, been the, through a real like exactly this whatever it was even though like they don't necessarily understand the whole truth of what happened like you did really fuck up their family for a hot yes, minute and made things difficult so yeah yeah and so I think that this the message is like look it's a balance and the the family has to let the individuals in the family be themselves and be their individual truths and the individuals have to sometimes sacrifice things for the greater Mm -hmm. good of the family um and obviously like I know everyone has their own relationship with family and and what that looks like for them and like I'm not trying to say or I don't even think Coco is trying to say that like people with toxic relationships have to like rise above and and connect with their family as much as it is to just say that like there are a lot of factors here and the individual needs are important. And in this case, and I think especially in Latina culture, like the family needs are also really important. Um, I think like, I was gonna, so I think it's also like a argument for communication. Like I had this mm, thought mm -hmm. while watching it, like I was like, what if like Hector and what's the great aunt's name? Tia? Imelda. Imelda, yes. Like, what if he had, like, found her in the afterlife, like, I don't know, 30 years ago and, like, explained everything to her? And, like, I don't know why he did that. He didn't do that. Like, maybe he tried. Maybe he was too scared. Like, whatever. Maybe she wouldn't hear it, wouldn't hear it, wouldn't hear it. And he just gave up. And that's, like, an argument for communication, right? Like, this is all based on a really awful misunderstanding. (laughs) And, but then it got me thinking, like, what it would be so sad if like they had like figured it out like oh shit and like everything's okay in the afterlife but he's still not on the like what's it called that they put people's pictures on um like the altar that yes um... he still doesn't get to be on the altar because Noah did like the you know living world like knows that everything's okay now and that mm-hmm. just made me really sad. <laughs> yeah, it is. It really is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. I kind of connected to family. And another theme I want to touch on is culture. Um, so first, like related to family, I do think that a struggle that a lot of Latina people face is like existing as an individual 
within a family where family has to be number one. And like mm -hmm. to the point where oftentimes it does supersede the needs of the individual. And I don't know, I think that's like a really tough like thing to explore. But I think the movie does a really, really good job of like, of balancing both sides and like giving, I don't know, kind of a, a, a more nuanced view, which is again, it's like, it's balance and it's mm -hmm. give and take and it's understanding and it's communication and it's listening. But some of the other like things culturally that I just want to talk about that I, I love that Coco did is, is just like weaving the culture into the story. And I think it does this so, so beautifully in a lot of ways. So just to give some examples that I noted my most recent time watching, I mean, obviously, Dia de los Muertos is a really big one. Um, I think the Alebrijes as spirit mm -hmm. guides is so amazing. They are like Alebrijes are, that's what they are. They are like seen as spirit guides, but they're also like little kind of like hand-painted trinkets almost, or, or like dolls, not the right word, but little, little like, things that figurines. you own and yeah yeah figurines and they're like that's like their purpose and I think it's really cool that they incorporated that so I love Fucking... that dog oh oh my god me too I like <laughs> looked behind me I was like where <laughs> what dog <laughs> yes um oh my god and his name being Dante like oh my god so good um I love the, the cameos <laughs> the it's cameos Frida from Frida Kahlo oh and my god <laughs> yeah Frida we'll talk more about Frida and my recreate <laughs> Um, I oh Ed, Ernesto de la Cruz is based off of Pedro Infante, who's like a similar kind of like sex symbol singer kind of playboy esque character. I don't, to my knowledge, not the same like murder vibe. I hope uh, not. <laughs> <laughs> but he did. He did like have a um, untimely death in a in a plane crash. Oh. Um, so he was like very heavily based off that character of, of um, Pedro Infante. Um, the, oh my God, the most beautiful bridge um, made of the, m like, marigold leaves. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's, like, stunning visually, but also is a really great nod. Yeah. Um, and then just, like, the colors of it all. Like, like I was saying, I think Dia de los Huertos is a, a really perfect opportunity for animation. And I think they did such an amazing job of, like, blending the beautiful, intricate designs and colors into this like animated afterworld. Mm -hmm. I do have a question for you because I, and I felt kind of dumb that I didn't like think about this, but I was listening to a podcast um, where the reviewer, she's Latina, she brought it up and she said it like sort of turned her off, like kind of right mm. at the beginning. And she got like back on board. Like I think her review ended up being positive, but how did you feel about the kind of like immigration vibes of the bridge like in between oh like she because she's I just remember her talking about it and like I can't remember what podcast I, I wish I could it was a while ago like a few years ago that I first heard it but she just she said it kind of she kind of went oh shit like why do we have yeah. to do this but, yeah I but it's hard because it kind of sets up the rest of the story I know I was gonna say yeah I, I, I it's actually reminding me of another like critique slash like it's like a critique with a caveat, I guess, mm -hmm. um, that I read. I again, I feel terrible, but I can't remember where I read this. <laughs> um, but kudos to you. Um, but someone was saying like a critique of how even in the afterlife, like there's a, a really big class system mm -hmm. um, and how like 
in in the culture and especially in the idea of Dia de los Muertos, like the whole idea is that death is like the final equalizer, you know, mm -hmm. like yeah. after death, we're all the same. Um, and obviously the film like doesn't propose that. And their like immediate caveat to that is like, if that was the case, then Miguel would walk into the afterlife find Ernesto and like say his piece yeah <laughs> like, yeah it, there would be that's that's the whole conflict is that there is class and they have to find a way to get there mm -hmm. so like I don't know I kind of feel maybe similarly about the immigration vibe where like maybe it could have been done more tastefully maybe it wasn't fully necessary and like I got the message yeah and like also I think it does a good job of of furthering the point later that we see about like death and and how dying isn't like the final death there's this also this aspect of being remembered Very sad which i'll death. talk about a lot yeah. more um but like i think that helps hammer that home i don't know i think that's a great critique though and i had mm -hmm. i really hadn't thought of that um right. well let's move on to death which is my final point <laughs> i want to talk about before i like get into my personal experience with the show i love that a kids animated pixar movie is literally about death um and I'm saying that because I think that like I think that especially American society like death is especially when it comes to kids like so taboo mm -hmm. um I also love that there's a balance in Coco where there's not like any there's not like deities there's not like you know any kind of supernatural stuff really happening here outside of you know like the afterworld mm -hmm. portrayal I guess but also it doesn't diminish, like if you look in the homes, there's crosses everywhere. Like there's, you know, typical <laughs> Latine <laughs> altars to like Christ and stuff that you see, but that's not like the point of the movie. I, I love that balance, but I think that Coco, where, where it might thrive the most is in like helping kids to conceptualize death, which yeah. like what a Herculean task to kind of set yourself out with. But I actually think they do it really, really well. I think that they balance the reality, which is that death is incredibly tragic and hard to process and like final on earth. Yeah. And they also show this other side of it that it's like an opportunity to remind us of our humanity and that life does matter because mm -hmm. there's an end to it. And that, you know, there, there has to be something if there's, there's an end to it. Um, I think that's right I'm trying to think of other Disney movies that like don't deal with death and like like obviously Gaston dies but we don't like him so it's like yay <laughs> um, but like like the only one that's coming to mind is Bambi mm -hmm. but that is viewed as like very traumatic I would argue yeah and the other movies like kids movies that I can think of that really dealt with death were like Don Bluth movies like um I mean Anastasia that's also traumatic but like uh, the land before time, I actually think does it quite well. Oh, it's like yeah. very sad, but like you know, like you you understand like something has yeah. to go on, and like there's there's happiness and like a parental figure to be found after the fact. And then there's like all dogs go to heaven, which is um one of the most traumatic movies I've ever watched. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I guess like even Lion King has the death, but oh yeah, I feel like that's a big I, one. I feel like all of these are like. <laughs> not that they're wrong, but there's like a chip on my shoulder. Like this is something I have to overcome, which is true. But mm -hmm. I think that Coco does this thing of balancing like death as not a bad thing, which like, 
mm -hmm. think is really hard to accept for us, but like, that's a personal philosophy that I have. Like death is, is a, a way of life and it, it, it happens. And yeah. like literally every living being that has ever been in the history of earth, at least as we know it has mm -hmm. died. And mm -hmm. that's, you know, if you're taking out the ego and our personal connections to people, I don't think death is a bad thing. It's, it's part of the cycle. It's part of everything. And I think Coco helps us conceptualize that if there's a finality, there's a difficultness with it, but there's also this way that we can honor death and that we can honor like what the life that was lived and, mm -hmm. you know, the love that they had. And there's this way of keeping them alive despite them not being physically present. They're still a part of this world in the way that their actions impacted you and in the way that you choose to remember those actions. Um, nice. Can't believe it's yeah. the Lion King. <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of Final Death, I do want to talk about that a little bit because I think that they, part of why they're so successful in, in doing this balance I was talking about with death is, is they personify that idea perfectly. That like, the, the idea that after you die, you're still, alive your legacy mm -hmm. and love and all of that is still alive on earth through the the people that remember you and the final death like that is such a dark concept it really is I don't think it's a bad concept but it is no. a tough concept to introduce like to kids what famous people are chasing you know like this idea yeah. that will never be forgotten Ernesto it de la Cruz. Yeah. yeah exactly mm -hmm. and I think it's tough but I think it's beautifully portrayed like basically after you die there's this like wonderful afterlife and other realm but once no one on earth at all remembers you anymore, like that's it. And that's when you kind of like go back into the whole of it all. Yeah. Um, and I think that's pretty crazy and also kind of poetic. It's like a big concept for kids to yeah. take on, but I think they it do is. it in a way that's like digestible. Yeah, I agree. Um, and then on the topic of death, I feel like I would be remiss to not talk about Remember Me um, and how I think it's such a perfect recurring song to use and how each time it's sung in the movie, it takes on a totally different meaning. Like you start with Remember Me, as you were saying, like this idea of having a legacy and wanting to be remembered mm -hmm. and maybe even kind of a toxic so... egoic way through Ernesto de, de la Cruz and the links that he would go to do that. You have Remember Me like as a father um, and he's singing it to his daughter and it's like this beautiful like I'm gonna be gone I'm on the road but like remember me and this song is like how you can remember me it's my love mm -hmm. for you in a song like so beautiful and then it kind of turns into like remember me as a human you know to like at the very end when when Miguel's singing it to <laughs> Mama Coco like it's so beautiful and she's like brought back to her inner child and she is remembering her father and and in doing that is now like bringing back life to him I don't know I think it's so beautiful such an no, amazing song it's definitely the best song in the movie I think and like I don't know the way that it changes each time like you said yeah is really nice good thematic yeah. little spin I agree um okay I I want to wrap myself up I feel like I've been going on for a while but <laughs> I do want to end on like my personal experience with this movie because I think I could talk forever about how important and impactful this film is but a huge part of that is because how it's impacted me personally um and I recently the last time I was back home with my parents I made my mom watch this movie and I it was like such a cathartic experience Aww. um and after like 
both my mom and I like sobbed our eyes out. I think she like really connected as well to the to Mama Coco, similar with like her mm-hmm. dealing with her mom going through dementia really badly and like quite literally forgetting her own daughter and, and yeah. grandchildren. Anyways, after watching it, my mom was like sobbing and like looked at me through tears and said, I wish there was a movie like this when I was growing up. Aww. And like, <laughs> I know it like really gets me. It's like, it's so true. And I think like, yeah. again, hammers down on something that we talk about so much on this podcast, which is like the importance of storytelling. Mm-hmm. And I think this shows why representation is so damn important. Like at 50, like none of your business years old, my mom was instantly connected back to her childhood self and like I don't doubt that for her as a young you know Honduran girl growing up in Texas I can't I have to think that like things might have been easier for her if she had had Coco and Encanto and Vida Mm -hmm. and One Day at a Time and Jane the Virgin and like these shows that have really incredible Latina representation Um, So I think that part of why it's so special is that it it not only gives a voice to the Latina community, which has like so often been thrown aside, not just like in the real world, but also in media, like reduced to caricatures or like Mm -hmm. quote unquote less than careers like maids and yard workers. But it also celebrates the like beautifully rich culture and traditions and it portrays these like complex nuanced characters that you root for. And I just think that it like shows little Latina kids out there that you can both pursue your own dreams and still be connected to your roots, which I think that's kind of what I opened on this sense of like pursuing what you want and also pursuing your family and and roots. And I think it balances those two things really well. That's so beautiful. Yeah, I love Coco. (laughs) I know. I feel like we picked two goodies. Yeah. Okay. Um, I guess we can move on to Bopless. And I also realized I kind of forgot about to talk, or I forgot to talk about the Broadway songs. So I'm going to take this opportunity to do that. But my Bopless. Um, I'm just gonna say the whole opening of this movie, like <laughs> a visual <laughs> bop, like watching it back, like the stained glass window animation is very cool. Um, it's really kind of the whole thing for me. I think Bell is an iconic opening number, mm-hmm. a perfect scene setter. Marie, the baguettes, like yeah, all... it's like Good Morning Baltimore level. <laughs> so Howard Ashman is from Baltimore. <laughs> wow <laughs> but anyway so it's it is it's just like as a perfect scene setter we learn who bell is like we learn who all the main characters are we learn what bell wants we learn what the villain wants we learn that the townspeople are sort of useless like it's like <laughs> perfect like you just have everything set up perfect and then there's a song in the musical called no matter what which um is cute but like whatever you know add it for the musical it's fine um there's a song in the musical called me which we need to talk about because it's great. Gaston doesn't really get, I guess Gaston gets like the Bane song, but like he doesn't get a ton of songs in the actual Mm -hmm. movie, um, barring, you know, the titular Gaston. But this song, Me, happens when he goes and proposes to Belle. And watching the movie, I was taken aback by how much dialogue they like actually lift from the movie itself and put into the song, which makes sense. 
you know, like the, my little wife massaging my feet and like all that stuff is like, just like directly lifted from the movie into the song itself. I also, side note, love when he takes his shoes off and puts them up on the table and he has just like one toe sticking out through a hole in his sock, (laughs) like perfect detail, loved it. And then you've got the Bell Reprise, which also rules. You've got in the musical, a song called Home, which is like perfect yeah and i think like a really nice julia lester salays susan egan the series too (laughs) oh my gosh yes susan egan um was the original bell on broadway you might know her as the cheer coach from gotta kick it up um or as meg from (laughs) that's where i know (laughs) from Uh, I think she's also, she's done a couple like English language translations of um, Studio Ghibli films. Like she's in Spirited Away in the English dub. Yeah, she just has an awesome voice. Like she has an awesome Mm -hmm. speaking voice and awesome like singing voice. She's great. Um, But I really love the song Home and I want to touch on it because I think like it's a nice foil to like Belle the whole time. It's like, I want to get out there. I want to leave. I want to go. And then like she leaves, something horrible happens and you know, is just this feeling of like god i wish i was fucking home like i Mm. i shouldn't have left and i think like she learns later on that that's not necessarily true because like that's not the message we want to push out to people but like it is such a human feeling like to once Mm -hmm. you have left and things aren't going as planned like oh shit god i just want to go home (laughs) and of course like not going as planned in this case means kidnapped (laughs) (laughs) um then we've got gaston which i think is like maybe one of the best songs ever in a Disney musical but then again I said that about like 50 songs as I was like watching I was like well maybe that's the best one oh maybe that's the best one so but Gaston is great it has some of the greatest lyrics ever Um, I use antlers in all of my decorating as an all-timer then we've got Be Our Guest which maybe that's the best song in a Disney musical I don't know the animation is incredible um, in the musical version, we've got If I Can't Love Her, which is a very sad song that the B sings, just kind of like, well, if this doesn't work, I'm fucked. Um, <laughs> we've got Something There, which is one of my favorite songs, and it's very, very cute. It's like when they go and look at the library and they're making snowballs. It's very sweet, like their little falling in love song. We've got Human Again, which is not in, it was written for the movie. They tuck it out. It's like um, Lumiere and all the cutleries, like big, you know, there I want song, I guess, about being human again. <laughs> um, but they do it in the musical. And I think they re-released the movie in like 2005 with, because that whole sequence was like animated, I believe. So they released it like with that sequence, which is very cool. You've of course got Beauty and the Beast, Oscar winning for a reason. <laughs> um, and then we kind of like, Um, There's a little bit of a, I guess, decline after that as far as songs. We have the mob song, which honestly rules. Like again, oh, it slaps. It's it slaps. It's a pretty good mob song. Like they do that as like a dance battle on High School Musical: The Musical, the series season two, (laughs) um, with the other school that's doing musical Beauty and the Beast. It's really good. That's great. (laughs) It's like honestly, like maybe I should join this mob, you know? But um, (laughs) um, but yeah, that's mostly it. I just think this is really like a top to bottom soundtrack yeah freaking rules yeah i'm gonna say the same about coco i listen to this all the time everything's on my bop list um all the iterations of remember me Mm. everyone knows juanita that's my mom's name love that song um un poco loco i like okay remember me is like objectively like the good song like the oscar song 
Poco Loco, though, it, mm-hmm. it slaps. Like, it hits different. Um, <laughs> the World is Mi Familia, La Llorona, like, Proud Corazon, all of it. I love the whole thing. All right. Should we move on to recreates? Let's do it. I can go first because mine's not that great. So, okay. <laughs> um, you know how there's a Lion King one and a half. That's about how um, Timon and Pumbaa became friends. Mm-hmm. So, Beauty and the Beast like sort of has a similar iteration. It has um, it's like Bell's Enchanted Christmas or something, oh, and it I takes place. Oh yeah, you still watch it all the time. It has the most scary Disney villain of all time, like bar none. Sequels. <laughs> Reginald movies he is a giant organ <laughs> named forte he is terrifying you can look up a picture from later like the most terrifying villain i've ever seen so anyway it kind of has one of those things because that movie takes place like while bell is at the castle while he's still a beast it is, it's not mm-hmm. like a sequel or anything it's like an in-betweener but i wanted to make a beauty of the beast one and a half about lumiere and cogsworth because they are the best. Um, I mean, we have the great Jerry Orbach, <laughs> who is Baby's dad from Dirty Dancing and also was in Law and & Order and is like a huge theater actor as well. Those are his only two credits, but he is the voice of Lumiere and he's so hot. I love it. And then you've got David Ogden Styers as Cogsworth, who just absolutely kills like the me, 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 me. Like that whole thing is so perfect. And their personalities are great. You know, they're opposites, opposites attract, like Timon and Pumbaa. They are kind of the not parental figures like Timon and Pumbaa are to Simba, but like kind of the caretakers, like the yeah. confidants for, you know, the Beast and Belle to some extent, mostly for the Beast, but they help Belle out too. And I thought it'd be fun to explore this relationship because they've probably explored each other, you know? <laughs> <laughs> um, that's the vibe I get. Like the vibe I get yeah. is that at the end of their lives, neither one of them has settled down. They're just living together. Like, oh mm-hmm. my God, they were roommates. But <laughs> so we would start the movie sort of with how this tension between them arose because it seems like they're friends now, but like the way they like rib each other, they probably weren't friends like when they first met, like they probably didn't like each other. Something happened that made them like buddies, you know? So, you know, we need to explore where they met. So did they meet at some, like, did they meet before they started working for this bratty 11 year old? Did they both get jobs at this (laughs) castle? So I think Lumiere is the mater d and Cogsworth is the major drama, so like head butler. Maybe they kind of clash over, you know, what time is dinner? Like, you know, Lumiere, he's not the chef, but he seems to like performance, you know? And like Cogsworth is very like, no, like buy the book, buy the book, buy the book. So maybe, you know, we start clashing over like making dinner a performance and it's late or something like that. And that's kind of where like the, the conflict comes into town. So I think that they probably became friendly post-transformation because that kind of trauma is going to bring people together yeah totally (laughs) so I think after you know this witch shows up and transforms all the people for no reason like they start to become friends you know they like become shoulders to cry on everyone's very traumatized by this event and I think like we should get to see how this relationship with the beast evolved as well because like you think like why are all these people so chill with this guy (laughs) who got them cursed because like they and like I know that that they do want to be turned back into humans like that's probably the main motivator but they seem to like 
care about him a little bit. Like when they tell yeah. Belle stuff, like he's not that bad. Like you just got to get to know him. Like that could be seen as like gaslighting, like, please like tell us turn back into humans. But I do think they genuinely mean it. Like he's not that bad. You just have to get to know him. He's been living as a beast for the past 10 years. He's kind of traumatized. Yeah. Um, and I believe them. So I want to see how that um, relationship evolved as well. I was also thinking like, you know, in Lion King one and a half, you like start with them as kids and Kongsworth says something that just screams like a story to me. Um, at one point he's like trying to like school the beast on how to woo Belle. And he says, well, you could give her flowers, chocolates, promises you don't intend to keep. And I was like, oh, like let's unpack <laughs> that a little bit. It sounds like someone's experienced something in their past that they would like to talk about. Um, and then I think it would be fun because, you know, Lion King one and a half like has like it starts like before the Lion King and then ends sort of like with the Lion King. And it'd be mm -hmm. fun to kind of see what shenanigans, you know, Cogsworth and Lumiere getting up to while we're waiting for the Beast and Belle to fall in love, you know? Yeah. And we make it to see a human again. We can include human again in the movie. There you I go. love that. I'm on board. <laughs> I want... I want Beauty and the Beast one and a half now. I want more Lumiere and Cogsworth in my life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Those guys are funny. <laughs> Love it. Um, okay, I don't think you'll be too surprised at my review, but okay. okay, actually, before I get into it and after I just completely waxed poetic about this movie, I do want to acknowledge a controversy, which would be the real thing I would redo or recreate with Foco. Uh, I don't know if you've read about this, but the <laughs> character of Mama Coco mm -hmm. yeah. seems to have been heavily based off of a woman from the small town in Mexico named Maria de la Salud Ramirez Caballero. Um, and basically, apparently the producers like did kind of like a due diligence trips and stuff to, to like Mexico and these towns and watch celebrations of Dia de los Muertos mm -hmm. and all these different things. But Apparently they like really heavily interviewed this one woman and like took pictures of her and had a lot of talks with her, but like nothing ever came of it. Um, and there was like never an acknowledgement at all. Apparently there's like a, they literally look similar. Like the she character. looks like exactly Exactly, yeah, yeah, like crazy. And yeah, I think the most frustrating thing too is that like she has since come out and been pretty vocal about it mm -hmm. and it's like she wasn't even seeking like royalties or money or anything, just like an acknowledgement of her contribution. Mm -hmm. And I think this ties back into what I was saying at the beginning of like Disney as an entity, because you know, this is them covering their ass and their lack mm -hmm. of acknowledgement. I have to, I don't know for sure. I have to imagine is not what the producers want or what the people, you know, involved in making Coco wanted. It's, what Disney the entity wants mm. um and it's so frustrating to like rip that and not have even the simplest of acknowledgments she also like in between the time where they interviewed her and Coco came out um she got like really sick and like yeah. could have used like money for like oxygen payments and stuff just I don't know disappointing and not ideal stuff so that's what I would actually redo or recreate is like <laughs> give her her flowers for sure um but for the sake of the pod, um, I'll talk about something else. So one of my favorite parts of Coco is how they utilize the character of Frida Kahlo to <laughs> advance the story in a way that I think was both like respectful and really referential, 
but also was not afraid to poke fun at her. Um, like her art still being super avant-garde in the afterlife and, and like that she's still <laughs> yeah. drowning in pain in the afterlife. Like really funny, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I don't want to remove Frida Kahlo from the movie, but I do want to add another iconic Latina that I think could serve as an additional touch point in this afterlife. And I, for the sake of this, I am going to replace Frida as um, this person. But I'm just doing that too like overstuffed, a, you as know? like a framework, mm-hmm. um, just because I think the way Frida works in the movie, I'm just kind of replacing it with another one. But let the record stay. I do not want Frida <laughs> out of this movie. And I think she deserves it and is treated really, I, know, I love hollow, her character. Please don't haunt Logan. <laughs> yeah, please don't. Yeah, haunt me. Um, anyway, I don't think anyone's going to be surprised when I say that the person I'm going to do is Selena. I have <laughs> talked about her and I think more than one recreate. I'm pretty sure yeah. I said it wouldn't be the last and I wasn't lying. Um, but I think it would be cool to give like a rough blueprint around how um, Coco could have or could still in a stage adaptation, who knows, mm-hmm. um, incorporate Selena into the afterworld as kind of like the character that ends up helping move the story along. So I chose three main areas that I love that they did with Frida and how you could do Selena instead. So the first is in the Alebrije. Um, so in Coco, Frida had her that was inspired by all the monkeys that she would paint herself in, in her self-portraits. So hers isn't like one big creature. It's like a bunch of little, like almost like Chihuahua Pomeranian-esque <laughs> monkeys. Yeah. <laughs> I like they follow her around, around her and stuff. It's really cute, actually. For Selena, I thought it would be cute for her alebrije to be a nod to one of the six pets that she owned which were five dogs and one python snake. Um, so I think hers should be a snake. Um, and I think that the vibe would, I would want it to be like a really, really, like I would want to shy away from any like s- scary snake stuff. Like I want it to be a really fun, kooky, like best friend companion kind of thing. So I think that would be her. I'll <laughs> For the performance, so the next, instead of being Frida having like that huge art show as the opening for Ernesto, I think it should be a Selena concert. And I think it would be so fucking iconic Mm -hmm. to have a nod to Selena's Astrodome performance, which is her final live or her final like televised Mm -hmm. um, performance before she died. And first of all, if you're listening to this and you haven't seen the concert, like, it's you can you can see it online it is one of the best performances ever like it is so good she just like knows herself she controls the crowd her vocals are amazing she opens it with like an eight minute disco medley of like different iconic disco songs it's so good Mm -hmm. and that is if you know the iconic selena like sparkly purple jumpsuit that is from that performance um, anyway, I would want to do some kind of like version of that as a nod to that as the big event that they have to like sneak through um, and maybe do like a modern update to one of her songs, like instead of Amor Prohibido talking about how it's just like forbidden love, like maybe now that they're in the afterlife, it's not forbidden. I don't know, something <laughs> like that. Yeah. <laughs> and then the last thing I would do is the sneakery, I call it the sneakery of it all, um, which so in Coco... Miguel is able to disguise himself as one of the many performing Fridas on stage. And that's kind of like how he gets behind the scenes and is able to meet and confront Ernesto de la Cruz. So with Selena, I think that a similar distraction tactic could be used. 
And I think that this is like kind of a similar thing that toes the line on like respect, but also like not being afraid to like make a little reference and, and here and there. Um, and not to like joke about her murder because obviously that's terrible, but to joke a little bit more about like Latina culture, which is mm -hmm. there's one thing every Latina person I've ever met that is a knows about Selena has like a vile, despite-trid hatred for Yolanda. Like yes. everyone hates Yolanda, the woman who <laughs> murdered Selena, who was like the president of her fan club. So maybe as the distraction for Miguel to get to Ernesto, instead of dressing up as a Frida, like have some kind of decoy Yolanda, <laughs> like she finally died and moved into the afterworld and has like Hector or someone else they met, like maybe the dog Dante, I don't know, someone, like dress up as Yolanda and have her be a distraction and have a huge like angry mob crowd moment against her pooling all the attention so that Miguel can get up and confront Ernesto. So oh my God. that would be how I would incorporate <laughs> Selena into Coco. Can you imagine Yolanda's <laughs> arrival to the afterworld? Yeah, that's going to be like her final death. I mean, I guess not because she's going to be remembered for a while. That's but... the thing. Like, is she gonna have a miserable ass existence in the afterlife <laughs> oh my god she definitely is not going on any ofrendas oh no 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 okay oh my god that's the end of the first episode that is the end of the first episode so exciting um and should we tease next week's yes do you have it pulled up i do not i'm pulling it up right now okay for next week's show kind of an interesting area for us to be going into oh, next week's category is song cycles Ooh. so we are departing kind of similar to this episode actually, a little bit, <laughs> from like a strict musical and we're going to talk about two song cycles that we're both familiar with and love and may not be stage shows but give kind of a cohesive concept story through music mm -hmm. in the style of musical theater yeah, I'm excited. Oh, man. Me too. I think we have two good ones. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening. Um, you can follow us. Oh my God, I haven't done this in so long. You can follow <laughs> us on Twitter, which should be back up and running again shortly at um, our name. What's our name? Break debate one. one. That is our name on the Twitter. <laughs> then I believe we are just rate debate everything recreate else. on everything mm -hmm. else so Instagram Correct. TikTok all that good stuff yeah and we're really trying to up our social game this season I think that's we like are. area we've maybe <laughs> been lacking in so um if you haven't given a follow before or maybe if you went and checked us out and weren't too impressed I don't blame <laughs> you but we're maybe give us a second chance because we're trying to polish that now yes we are we're, we're gonna make it better I yeah. believe we can do that so <laughs> all right everyone thanks so much for listening we thank will see you. you see you next week next week Great. Great.